Hey, First Readers. Your hosts are taking a few weeks off this summer to work on other projects, so we're bringing you a series from the First Reading Vault, our walk through the Genesis lectionary texts from back in 2020. There are a few pandemic references in here because, well, that's what was happening in 2020, but there are also some real gems in here to help with your preaching this time through Year A in the RCL. So enjoy the episode, and we'll see you again with new content later in the summer. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all of God's creatures. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. This week, we're bringing you some preaching tips on Genesis 29, 15-28, which is the first reading scheduled in the lectionary for July 26, 2020, which is the eighth Sunday after Pentecost. And really, this is, this is quite an interesting text because it comes as sort of a midway point in the story of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. Uh, it's kind of a story that moves the plot along, and because of that, it can be kind of tricky to preach on. So here to help us mine this text for whatever preaching gold there may be buried in them dar hills is a special guest exegete. That's right. To lead us through them there hills, we've got Dr. Cameron Howard today. Cameron is an associate professor of Old Testament at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, my alma mater. She is a graduate of Emory University, also. (laughs) Well done. And has contributed to several commentaries and journals, uh, including the Women's Bible Commentary, one of my favorites, WorkingPreacher.org, and the BibleOdyssey.org. Her current project is especially appropriate for our situation because it's all about multiple viewpoints and how the Bible holds those together and how that might be a a model, perhaps, for us moving forward into our 21st century church life. We totally recommend checking out her stuff on workingpreacher.org. Dr. Cameron Howard, welcome to First Reading. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. Oh, it's always great to have a Lutheran person on. Go, go Lutherans. <laughs> well, I am Presbyterian, but I say you do. That you I, hold both of those. I sojourn among Lutherans. Yes, yes. Right. And Tim's, Tim's I can appreciate that as the other Presbyterian on the chat today. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really interested in this project about the multiple viewpoints in the Bible and how holding those together, you know, because as a as we've all taught seminary classes and we've all been through seminary classes, there's always that moment where you learn something as a student that feels really scary and it feels like it starts to shake maybe some of the foundations of your faith. And it often has to do with the way the Bible contradicts itself or the way that something in the Bible doesn't quite make sense. So can you tell us a little more about this project of how that might actually be a faithful model for us to follow? Yeah, I think that the um, what is so delightful to me about studying the Hebrew Bible, the reason that I uh, keep doing it, <laughs> I've committed to it, is precisely its um, its multiplicity, the way it's just so full of um, difference. And so some of that difference is literary. You know, there are different genres. It's not just a story. I mean, we can talk about it as God's story. That's one way to conceptualize it. But when it comes down to the texts that are actually in it, it's got narratives, but it's also got poetry. It's got legal material. It's got um, 
prophecy. It's got wisdom literature. Some of that's mm-hmm. also poetry, you know. So there's yeah. um, a lot of literary uh, difference there. Um, there's also a lot of kind of chronological difference. So it doesn't just sort of drop from heaven at one time, but it reflects mm-hmm. um, very different, very uh, stressful sort of in the geopolitical sense um, moments in the history of ancient Israel. And there are adjustments made by the characters in and the writers of these texts to try to sort of make sense of changing times. Um, You know, the sort of basic example would be, okay, if we understand God to be accessible in the temple in Jerusalem, and then there is no more temple, how do we have to sort of rethink Uh, where we find God, how we encounter God. I mean, there are a lot of examples of that sort of thing. And so um, the Bible is not just this kind of static text that says um, all the answers to our deep questions, but rather shows us that people of faith have been um, thinking dynamically about what it means to be in relationship with God since the beginning. Mm Um, and that's, to me, a very thrilling way of thinking about the Bible. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, we're, we're really excited to chat with you uh, walking through this text, our lectionary text this week. Uh, would you be willing to read for us Genesis 29, 15 to 28? Sure, I'd be glad to. I'm going to read it out of the Common English Bible translation. Wonderful. Great. Laban said to Jacob, You shouldn't have to work for free just because you are my relative. Tell me what you would like to be paid. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah and the younger Rachel. Leah had delicate eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and was good-looking. Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will work for you for seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Laban said, I'd rather give her to you than to another man. Stay with me. Jacob worked for Rachel seven years, but it seemed like a few days because he loved her. Jacob said to Laban, the time has come. Give me my wife so that I may sleep with her. So Laban invited all the people of that place and prepared a banquet. However, in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he slept with her. Laban had given his servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her servant. In the morning, there she was, Leah. Jacob said to Laban, What have you done to me? Didn't I work for you to have Rachel? Why did you betray me? Laban said, Where we live, we don't give the younger woman before the oldest. Complete the celebratory week with this woman. Then I will give you this other woman, too, for your work, if you work for me seven more years. So that is what Jacob did. He completed the celebratory week with this woman, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. It's so interesting. I just am having such a reaction to this right now, simply because we're at my um, I'm at my parents' house, and they have a bunch of old books, old children's books, and some of them are like really old, the Bible story for children. And last night, my daughter, who's seven handed me the one about Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. (laughs) And it's the first time I've ever had a hesitation about this story. I love the Jacob story. I love this 
whole concept. I love, you know, the, the messiness of the family relationship between Rachel and Leah. But thinking about trying to talk about this text with my seven-year-old daughter, it hmm. started to get a little tricky. Um, so we, we can talk about that later. But so this is, an, you know, an ongoing family drama in Genesis. Um, so maybe let's review just the quick literary context up to this point. What's happened to lead us here? Well, we remember that Jacob and Esau are twin brothers, and Jacob has swindled, tricked his brother Esau. <laughs> well, first of all, um, sort of preyed on Esau's own personality to uh, take his birthright and then tricks his father Isaac into giving Jacob, the younger son, his blessing rather than um, Esau, mm -hmm. the older son. And so that dynamic of who Jacob is as the younger son um, who's willing to play tricks uh, to get what he wants, I think, is a really important part of the preceding text to carry Definitely. into this one. And then, of course, he's he's gone now to find a wife. He's gone to Laban specifically to um, find a wife from within his family. Laban is his uncle. <laughs> so now Jacob has gone um, to seek out Laban and to marry one of his daughters. And, and he finds them and we meet them and we get this sort of strange uh, physical description of the two women. I wonder what, what you make of that. We're, we're told something about Leah's Leah's eyes, and that Rachel has a good bod, and uh, and that uh, Jacob's into Rachel. So what what do we make of all that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, and um, Rachel, getting to your point about the how kind of more difficult this is to talk about with uh, with children and especially girls, right? That this whole story. Um, is about the dynamic between the men. At least that's what the narrative seems to be concerned about and gives very mm -hmm. little concern to the agent or none at all to the agency and feelings of the female characters in the story. Yeah. So we do sort of, if we had a camera lens, right, I feel like we would just be like ogling the women of the story <laughs> um, yeah. to, to, to watch Jacob evaluate them physically, which is yeah. um, disturbing. I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's problematic. But, yeah, the, the contrast that then is drawn between them is really interesting. So Leah has soft eyes. I like the CEB says delicate. I feel like that leaves open both the possibility that they are um, beautiful in a soft way or that they are weak, which is the another way that sometimes this mm -hmm. verse is translated that Leah had poor eyesight. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time sort of thinking about this <laughs> and um, as I often do I come back to the the kind of the ambiguity that we can't get rid of and I think yeah. that that um, is part of what enriches so many of these stories just that it is a sort of unresolvable part exactly what did they mean we can't quite mm -hmm. access that um, we can't access that original intent and so we're left to sort of get to play in the ambiguity of it that's left. 
Yeah, which can be a really uncomfortable place for, I mean, it's kind of an uncomfortable place for me. I really like knowing what sort of ground I'm standing on. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot you can harvest from these sort of ambiguous spaces where you're not sure exactly what's going on. So um, I, I think let's keep that in mind as we keep talking. I'm guessing ambiguity is going to be a bit of a hallmark from the, for this story. Um, and I think there is one thing that's pretty clear. I mean, it's pretty clear that Jacob prefers Rachel, what it, yes, whether the yes. text is sort of affirming Leah or, or trying to draw a significant contrast between the two. It's clear that Jacob is into Rachel and not into Leah. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, in verse 20, it's a, it's a, it's almost the more like waxing poetic that we've seen so far in the Pentateuch when it's talking about romantic love between two people. I mean, it says that, you know, Isaac loved Rebecca and was comforted by her after his mother's death. But this is, I think, the only, the next time that we hear about romantic love in the Bible. And this verse 20, you know, it seemed but a day to him because he loved Rachel so much. Like, what what do you make of what's going on there with this talk of love and especially this exuberant discussion of love? I, I, I love that. That was, <laughs> um, and one of the things that I really appreciate about it is that, you know, one of the reasons it stands out is because in the Hebrew Bible, um, it's it's narrative, it's prose is always so economical. You don't get many extra details when you're reading stories yeah. in the Old Testament. Um, your listeners may have noticed that if they've been journeying through the, the narratives, um, you just get very matter of fact, kind of sparse. Um, presentations. You don't get that kind of scene painting. You know, it was a dark and stormy night. And, the, yeah. <laughs> right. and so any little extra detail that you get outside of the plot and the dialogue is something to hold on to. And so mm. our attention really does go to this wonderful flourish at verse 20 that characterizes Jacob's love for Rachel. Mm. And Jacob, um, Jacob is maybe the most emotive of the patriarchs, would you say? Yeah. Like, at least from the narrator's perspective, Abraham is just kind of get the job done. <laughs> Isaac, you don't <laughs> hear my much wife about is my him. You know, he doesn't get yeah. a lot of opportunity to, he's not a very round, mm -hmm. full character. Uh, but Jacob... He's got... You get a real window into his sort of in, inner dialogue or his inner... Uh, experience. Exactly. And he has, as we say in my house with my kids, big feelings. <laughs> <laughs> he has a That's lot a great of things to, to work it. through. You know, he has a lot of fear. He makes all these bargains with God. If you bring me to the yes. safe place, then you'll be my God. Right. We just uh -huh. talked about that last week. It's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. Yeah. Jacob has all the feels. Mm -hmm. All the fields. You know, the other uh, sort of dynamic in this part of the story that is troubling at, at, on first reading and maybe on 60th reading <laughs> is that uh, not only do the women here not really get much or any agency, but they're talked about as sort of, well, literally as wages for Jacob's work. When when Laban says, you know, you're my family, so um, just because you're my family, I'm not going to have you work for me for free. What should I pay you? And he says, pay me her. 
And uh, I, um, I wonder how we deal with that. Is that something that um, we should find a way to explain and sort of understand in its context and let it go as one of those ancient things? Or, or what do we do with that? So, yes, we can explain it as part of the ancient context. I mean, I think that's true and accurate. That doesn't make it feel any better <laughs> to us necessarily. <laughs> I don't think that that should erase our discomfort with the text. And we should also remember that, you know, there are real women's experiences behind the fictional or quasi-fictional or however you want to talk about the characters of the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. the female characters. Maybe there are real historical figures back there, but there are certainly the experiences of women throughout the world and throughout time who have been subject to these same kinds of institutions Mm -hmm. or behaviors. So on the one hand, yes, I think we do sort of acknowledge this is how it was then, but we should not let that acknowledgement erase that that is an injustice and a pain that has been experienced by women. But I think for preachers, you know, what do you do? I think, I think naming that is really important and not just sort of brushing it aside and saying, oh, well, you know, that's just the way it was. Yeah, that's really yeah. helpful. And I think, too, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago, Tim, about how the um, the idea of Sarah's barrenness, which feels difficult for can feel difficult for us today to talk about because it's like, why is the woman always blamed? You know, why isn't it ever an issue mm-hmm. of the men not being able to have children? But that that was actually a way to to bring Sarah into the story more completely, which otherwise just would have been about Abraham. I wonder if we're not seeing, you know, even though the women are silent here, if we're seeing, we're not seeing Rachel and Leah being drawn into this story, which is about patriarchs and matriarchs and not just patriarchs. Does that, do you think that makes sense, Cameron? Yeah. I mean, and think about the way that Rebecca influences Jacob to get the birthright. Um, There are many places in which um, women are, very active characters in the ancestral narratives. I think we see that uh, in lots of places. And so it's not front and center, but I think the text is not without those glimmers. Yeah, no, I think so. And and just to kind of continue with that theme of glimmers into someone's character, um, what do you make of the fact that Jacob doesn't recognize Leah (laughs) Like he doesn't, he loves this girl so much that he doesn't even recognize it's not her until the next morning. What, what do you make of that? Is that a a glimmer into character or was the wine just flowing at the wedding feast or? (laughs) Well, I think it does make Jacob look ridiculous. right? I mean, that, that gap that's in the narrative that doesn't get filled in, you know, what exactly happened there again, I would say further reinforces Jacob's kind of, it's not exactly impulsiveness, but he gets a kind of one-track mind that he's kind of swept up in the moment. Yeah. Kind of. And of course that maybe it's what goes around comes around because um, in the whole, you know, he's been the, the heel grabber, the younger son mm-hmm. who was trying to make his way to be the first. And of course what he requested was not the older daughter, but the younger daughter, Rachel. Right. So That's that right. that yeah. um, reversal is now sort of coming back to haunt him, perhaps. Which which adds irony to Laban's statement to him. Round here, we don't favor the younger ones. <laughs> yes, that is so 
uh, poetic. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, I love that line too. It's, I mean, there's for for all of the strange misogyny in this story, there's a lot of humor embedded in it too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and and that's one of the places where it's like. Couldn't you have told this to me seven years ago that you always marry the older ones off first? Right. And I think it's really important when reading the Bible to acknowledge that there are things about it that are quite funny um, and, yeah. and that that's okay. Yeah. And I think the other thing it lifts up too is sometimes you have to wait to hear how an action is evaluated until the end of the story. You know, mm-hmm. kind of like Jacob does all this nasty stuff at the beginning of the story to his brother Esau, and we don't hear a word from God condemning it. But what we see is the story kind of circle back around, around Jacob, and his actions do come back to haunt him. And you were talking about karma or irony here, Tim. And I think we see the story kind of circle back around here and and evaluate Jacob's previous actions as well. Right, because he gets out-tricked by uh, the, the other trickster in the story. Yeah, Laban. What, tell us more about, do you know much about the, the trickster motif in ancient, ancient literature? You mentioned that Rachel exhibits some trickster um, characteristics. Laban and Jacob certainly do. What, what was going on there with that genre? Yeah, I mean, it's a, an archetype, right? The, the um, kind of the anti-hero but um, there's something compelling, isn't there, about the the hero who can use her or his um, wit to outsmart people who um, maybe have power over them or seek to do them harm. Or yeah, I think also as well uh, about just sort of the different streams of power, maybe, or the different um, ways you negotiate power in the text. And the- it's really compelling throughout the Genesis narratives, the way that the way we've always done it is continually usurped. So the older sibling is always ahead of the younger sibling. You know, barren women don't have children. All of your expectations about stand how the standard life should go are continually just as a pattern, as a rule, undone. Yeah, I think especially in this moment where the way we've always done things is impossible in a lot of ways for churches right now. Mm -hmm. You know, in the midst of COVID-19, we cannot do things the way we've always done them, at least to some extent. So, Yeah, that is, I think, at the heart of the Bible. It's a a unifying theme. So I I emphasize a lot difference in the Bible and multiplicity, multivocity. Um, if I had to pick a unifying theme, and it's a little bit cheating because the the <laughs> the the, the uni- <laughs> I'm saying that the the unity is I mean what I would call innovation. That is, there's a there's a response to changing times and changing circumstances. That is a very faithful biblical thing to do, which is to mm. take your current understanding of theology and worship. And um, even sort of institutional structures and social systems, and hold them up yeah. um, against uh, what what we believe it means to be fa- in faithful, ongoing relationship with God, and think how does that how does that change? How does that look different in a new day? Because it looks different mm-hmm. if we lay out the sort of historical timeline of the Bible. That 
understanding shifts according to the very complex and quickly changing world. And so I think we should lean into that dynamism that's already kind of baked into the Bible. I love it. I do too. Well, maybe we should turn towards preaching pitfalls and preaching angles. We've already covered quite a bit here in the story, and I wonder if we can pull some of those threads together into what we like to offer to our listeners, these sort of preaching pitfalls on the one hand and ways that we might approach this, preaching angles on the other. Uh, For any of us, for either of you, what would you say would be the pitfalls that preachers should steer clear of when trying to handle this text in their sermon? I wouldn't want to say um, there is a, a an heroic character in this story that we should all be like, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> be nice. like mm-hmm. Jacob or be like uh, uh, Rachel, um, be like Leah, be like Laban. It's, I think it's not about that. It's not a sort of analog for human behavior today. I think it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, I think that the, um, the the pitfall that I could see is one that you named really nicely, Cameron, which is not rushing too quickly past sort of writing this off as, oh, this is the way people just did marriages in the past, but really respecting the fact that even if this is the way marriage arrangements happened or still continue to happen, it reflects real life experience, which can be very, very painful um, or oppressive, especially for women. So I think not trying to... Um, make that part of the story palatable, but just to name it in all its uh, reality and and have people sort of sit with that, I think would be um, a pitfall to not do that. That was kind of a double negative, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Tim? Well, I guess the only one that we haven't mentioned yet uh, as far as pitfalls that I might toss in would be, um, as I'm thinking about preaching angles, I would lean towards a kind of fronting the story of the women in this pericope. Uh, and as I do that, I recognized my own slighting of another woman who's in this story, just in a fleeting mm. way, Zilpah, yeah. uh, the maidservant of Leah. Nice. And in the verse just following where the lectionary ends, we also meet Bilcha, uh, who is yeah. another slave. Those two women also become a part of this bigger story, and yet their experience, much like Leah and Rachel's, is one of marginalization and of being subservient not only to the men in the story, but also to the women in the story. So as far as a preaching pitfall, I would just say that if you are going to, like I might, talk about the women in the story, I wouldn't overlook Zopah and Becha that they should at least get a, an honorable mention, an acknowledgement of their their place in the story, both for its prominence as mothers of the nation, uh, but also their experience as women slaves who had no control over their own destiny. Yep, yep. That would be another one to not sort of brush over or say this is the way things were done, but to let the discomfort with that, especially in our current moment, uh, to let that discomfort sit in all of us, so. Hmm. Well, do you want to say any more about that angle, Tim, of how you might lead with the women's perspective? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I was just thinking if I were preaching this text, um, there is so much in this story and so many things you could draw from it, but I might kind of pull out the thread of the women in this story, uh, the way that they are 
really without their consent, drawn into this story, which is about dominating, conniving men. And the another irony of the story is that they become really central players or heroines in the larger story of the nation as the ancestors of both of the Israelite kingdoms. Uh, Rachel is the mother of Ephraim, who is the namesake of, of the northern kingdom, and Leah is the mother of Judah. Uh, and, and so we have them in this prominent place. And Part of the reason they're coming to mind, I've been spending a lot of time lately in the book of Ruth in preparation for doing some teaching on that. And in in the end of the book of Ruth, in the blessing that the elders give to Boaz uh, regarding Ruth, they say that may this woman that you're bringing into your home be like Rachel and Leah, <laughs> who mm. mothered the nation. And so in that sort of uh, reflective mode from a, a much later story, we have this remembrance of Rachel and Leah, not as just powerless, marginalized people, but as really significant central players in the story of what became God's people. And, and so I, I would like to somehow bring them into, into the story that way. That's really nice. That's one of those glimmers, I think, uh, that yeah. we were talking about earlier, places where there's there's more to it than the kind of flatness of the narrators of some of these stories. Yeah. Nice. Oh, I want to hear that. That's like a great <laughs> sermon. Okay, Rachel, how would you how would you preach this text? <clears throat> well, I keep thinking about this idea that Cameron was talking. You were talking about um, innovating in the face of of change, but I think you could also say um, really facing disappointment. You know, I I think if I were to if I were to do a sermon, I might do this story backwards and talk about the morning after the wedding feast and how that morning changed everybody's life um, for what seemed like the worse. Uh, jo- Jacob wakes up and realizes that his beloved is not his wife. Leah wakes up and realizes that her husband does not want her. Rachel wakes up and who knows how she felt? We can assume from the story she loved Jacob and wanted him, if you want to, you know, kind of throw that in there. And she wakes up and she is not his wife. And Zilpah wakes up and, and her station has changed as well. So everybody's mo- life that morning after the wedding feast is filled with complete difference and perhaps a lot of disappointment. So in the face of that, how do you faithfully move forward? How do you, you know thinking again of our situations of the the people who desperately want to go back to church and can't either because of legal restrictions or because they're vulnerable, they're elderly, they're sick, and they cannot go to this place that has always been a solace for them. What do you do the morning you wake up after a wedding feast? Um, And what's so beautiful about then following Jacob's story is what comes from that morning after that wedding feast is 13 children, you know, 12 sons and a daughter. And then what comes after that is uh, two kingdoms. And then what comes after that, you know, you can just keep going with that story that all had to start with that disappointing, horrible morning after the wedding feast. So I think I might try to kind of um, spin some hope out of the story in that way, but sort of leaning into that moment of shock where everything is different now and everything feels worse and how can it be good again in some way so i think that's the direction that i might take cameron is there anything that you would want to add to how a preacher might tackle this text well because my primary vocation is 
teacher instead of preacher, it's probably um, no surprise that I I find myself really wanting to emphasize um, the teaching moment in in the sermon. So, you know, for many people in the pews, this 15 minutes or however long the sermon might be is their uh-huh. only encounter with the Bible all week. Yeah. Both the sort of teaching and the proclamation of the gospel happens for most people in that sermon moment. And so I would say that there is something about simply learning the story that is itself gospel. That is, it connects us to ancestors in the faith. It reminds Mm -hmm. us of the ongoing eternal faithfulness of God. And so that um, simply to spend some time in the story and um, teach and remind the congregation that, that those stories are there, that they forge these connections for us through time, is in and of itself, I think, worthy of some sermon time. Yeah. Oh, amen. Well, that's so helpful. And wow, this has been a really interesting story to take a look at. Thank you, Cameron, so much for being a part of our podcast. Thank you for asking me. It was so much fun. Oh, good. Well, remember, friends, if you enjoyed this conversation, you can catch more of our past episodes on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. If you haven't subscribed, please do so you can be up to date on all the things that wonderful guests like Dr. Cameron Howard are thinking about these days. If you've got any friends who haven't heard about us, maybe just tell one of them. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. This week we used some music from Blue Dot Sessions, so thanks to them for that. And thanks to you for listening. Be safe, and we'll talk to you next week.